the long run, passivity won't pay off. It never pays off. If you want a life of meaning and transcendence, you're going to have to move. Aggression doesn't have to be toxic or damaging. Healthy aggression risks. It builds new things. It breaks through barriers. It's the key to living a life that matters. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Here's a question for you. What hasn't Dondre Whitfield done? You're, you might say, I don't know. I don't know who, who's Dondre Whitfield. Let me tell you who Dondre Whitfield is. Let's start with Hollywood. He got his first big time acting gig in 1985 in six episodes of The Cosby Show. He went on to be nominated for three daytime Emmys for his role on All My Children. A string of TV shows and movies followed, allowed him to work alongside celebrated actors like Helen Mir and Michael B. Jordan, Kevin Hart. He's currently featured in Queen Sugar, a television show lauded for how it tackles complex issues like culture, class, and racism. And in 2018, he was nominated for an NAACP Image Award for his role on the show. But wait, there's more. He's passionate about activating men to leave boyhood behind. He co-created the Manhood Tour, a global movement committed to giving men the keys to an effective and meaningful life. His new book, Male Versus Man, is about calling men out of their extended boyhood and into a life of impact. Oh, and by the way, he's married to an actress turned director, Sally Richardson. He's got kids of his own. He does Krav McGraw. Yes, Krav Maga. Krav Maga, Krav Maga. I don't know how. <laughs> I tell you, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Don Thank Drew you, sir. Thank you. I, uh, I am so humble. First of all, I just feel, I feel like I, got, uh, I just got eulogized. So I don't know if I'm still here or not. But if I am <laughs> here still, I'm, so, I'm thankful to be here with you, brother. Sounds great. Well, I already messed up the spelling or the pronunciation of Krav Maga, Krav Maga. I did a, uh, Krav Maga. I did a Krav one time. Maga. I did a one time lesson that was uh, for video purposes. Pretty cool. Explain to everyone what Krav yeah. Maga is. Um, it's a uh, a fighting system uh, that has been adopted very heavily by the Israeli uh, soldiers. So it's an Israeli fighting system. Um, it's no nonsense. There's nothing pretty about it. It's simple. It's effective. It's to the point. Only debuts, obviously, if you were in uh, a hand-to-hand combat street uh, fight. So there's going to be, you know, blows to the nose, blows to the throat. Like, this is when you when you feel like your life is truly in danger and the, the life of, like, yourself and your family is truly in danger. Blows to the nose and blows the throat. That's why this is called the aggressive life. Yeah, that was, uh, yes. that was, my, that was my experience. I went and did a <laughs> did a class one just a just an hour and you know you got people who do taekwondo and they do all the forms yeah. and all that. that that that's fine that's fine but yeah it's nothing like somebody saying okay when someone comes at you here's where you grab their head and here's how you jam it into your knee yeah it's like learn all the forms you want but a knee to the knee to the face is pretty <laughs> intense yeah and and plus I you know before this um, I have a history with a, a good friend of mine his name is James Buddy McGirt. He's a, uh, a three-time world uh, champion uh, boxer uh, at junior welterweight and welterweight. So I trained with him for 
years. So I, I do have a, an extensive background um, in, in boxing first, and then Krav was just serving as a, another space of, look, as a righteous man, my job is to build people, but we do have to understand that there is evil in this world that's coming after you, and, um, and if that ever does come to be, you have to be able to defend yourself. I have a wife and I have two children, and uh, my job as a, as a man is to be able to make sure that my family is okay. Yes. Well, let's go back to 1985. Yes, sir. It is your first big-time acting role, 1985, on The Cosby Show. For our younger, when they hear the word Cosby, they have a whole different set of things that pop up than when you and I were thinking about Cosby way back when. I mean, The Cosby Show, Bill Cosby... by the way, I'm not getting into Bill Cosby. Sorry, I'm not going to ask you. I don't, and, and, and don't worry about it. I'm completely comfortable doing that too. I have oh, nothing wow. to hide. Okay. But I just, I mean, that, that, talk about a gig of gigs. The Cosby Show was a show that was everyone's favorite show. It was, a, it was a darling of the critics. It was a darling of people who just wanted a good watch. And you got yes. that role. What was that like way back when? You know, it was surreal because... At that time, I was still living in Brooklyn, not the beautiful gentrified one that <laughs> that we see now, but the one that would take your head off. Um, my father was in and out of jail, um, and I, uh, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, I had to fight every day. Um, not, no one ever, contrary to popular belief, human beings do not like to fight. I don't care who you are, but if you flex that muscle often enough, it becomes something that you that you uh, lean on. But getting back to that original point of how how much of an out of body experience it was to be on the most watched show basically in television history, um, and still be living in an area that was considered to be the inner city, the hood, as it were, um, and to be on that show was. Absolutely surreal. So your first day on set, you just walk. First job. First job. I mean, you go on and you just just drop in your guys being on these guys. What's it like? Well, it's well, you know, seeing him as a kid on you know various television shows and you know PBS television shows and and films, um, having you know comedy albums, you know, at home for my grandmother and my mother, um, that was completely surreal. And then having to, after my first episode, they began to write, my character was into biorhythms and to horoscopes. He was a kid who was 13 years old, who was way beyond his years. And so comedically, um, they got great value out of putting my character, Robert, next to him, speaking about life and how he had these uh, philosophies of life. And so um, there was great comedic juice coming out of that. And so to be able to sit there toe-to-toe with one of the greatest comedic minds ever in front of a live studio audience uh, was probably the best training ground I've ever been in. It's kind of like, you know, get fresh out of boot camp and now they're dropped right into the middle of a, of a battle with the, you know, as a Navy SEAL. 
It was the equivalent of that. Would he make stuff up on the spot or did he just follow us? Absolutely. So improv- improvisation was a, a huge part. So what we would do uh, is we would do the first take, we would do that scripted. And once the director said, okay, yeah, no problem. We're good here, right? Then after that, all bets were off. Anything could happen. So you have to really... Uh, be a student. You have to really be listening in order to make sure that you weren't missing anything. So I had to constantly be listening uh, to what he was saying because if he said something, what was scripted may not necessarily match what he's saying. So as an improvisationalist, you have to really listen to your partner in order to elicit the, the, the proper response. Yeah, I wish... You could go, but I guess you could. There's probably someplace. Maybe it's on Spotify. I mean, his his old stand-up stuff was utterly stunning and mesmerizing. The the no, he does a whole bit on Noah's Ark. Remember that one, Noah's Ark. Totally, it's, it's genius. <laughs> and a dad yeah. making cake. Yeah, dad <laughs> make cake. It's he's like, what's in what's in cake? Eggs. That's good for you. Milk. That's good for you. <laughs> yeah, man. He was a a comedic genius. And let me just say this while we're here. So we obviously we have to talk about the elephant in the room, right? Yeah, let's so, talk. How do you go from idolizing this guy and then news stories come along? So let me just say this in, in, to, in, in, com, uh, in complete transparency. I subscribe to many, many things that I learned from him responsibility. They spoke about philanthropy. They spoke about the pursuit of higher education. Um, They spoke about excellence. But the biggest lesson that I learned was that I I was once asked in in an interview, they said, what's the greatest role you've ever played in your life? And I thought about it for a second and I said, the role that I play as a man. And so the interviewer said, what movie is that? And I said, no, 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 no. The role that I play every day as a man. And here's why. Bill Cosby had the most watched show in television history. Arguably one of the greatest philanthropists we'll ever meet. A advocate for higher education. How to be a family man. How to honor your children. All of those things. And yet now, when you hear the name Bill Cosby, the first thing you think about are all of those women. And what that said to me was that no matter what I do in this life, if I don't play my role as a man well, it will tarnish everything that I ever do, every other role that I ever play. So it is paramount for me to be the man that God intended me to be when I was created. Otherwise, that will tarnish every other thing that I do in my life. That is the greatest lesson I've learned. And by the way, after hearing about all of those women, after hearing about all of that pain, I was grieving at the loss of this man because it was like learning a relative of yours did something so 
terribly harmful to uh, all these other people. And it changed everything that you felt like you knew about this person. So that's the other side to the story that many people don't hear. But again, all I thought about were the, the women that I knew that as a man, I had the assignment of restoring and resuscitating. Well, there had to be initially when all those stories came out, you had to initially disagree with them and be in denial and say, no way that's true, right? For sure. It's like learning that you're, you know, that your father, right. You know, he was a surrogate father to many of us. And so, yeah, you go, man, there's no way because we never, we never saw any of that. I love how, you know, people will come up to you and they'll say, you know, some of the, (laughs) some of the craziest things. Hey, did you see any of that? Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) We went into his dressing room and we watched him drug up uh, two and three. What are you, a nut? Of course not. Right. Right. So yeah, no, we never saw any of that. There was never a hint of any of that, right? Yeah. Uh, So when you hear about these things, it's devastating because how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that? I didn't have my father in my life. And so for me, Bill Cosby was a surrogate father figure. That's right. And so to hear all that, it was devastating. Right. Well, one of the the most powerful thing in a man's life is a father figure. And many of us do not have a father figure. So we are basically perpetually little boys unless there's a superhuman work that happens outside of us. But for you to have a father figure, then, you know, Superman dies, basically. Yes. You, 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 it must've taken you a while to recover from that. Devastating. Still not sure that I'm over it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I talk about in my book, Male Versus Man, I talk about how every man has to be the walking tree of his house and his community. A tree is the first piece of shelter that we ever had in our lives before we had structures. A tree is, uh, is the covering that provides shelter from the harmful elements of the world. That's what men are supposed to be for the women and children in their life. Trees provide food in the form of fruit, right? But not just food that we eat. As a man, my job is to provide the kind of food that feeds my family emotionally, mentally, spiritually, right? A tree also gives us oxygen when we give it poison. We give it carbon dioxide, it gives us oxygen. A man is supposed to give or provide things for the women and children in their life that allows them to be able to breathe better to live better. So a man has to be the walking tree of his house and his community. And every time I go back to thinking about the things or the loss that I had in my mentor, I apply those lessons to my life and say, that will absolutely never be the story of my life. I have an 11 year old son and my job is to model for him what I want him to mirror. Yeah, I, this is a podcast, so no one can see here, but you and I are doing this on Zoom, you know, and I, I can still see the pain in your face, brother, just going back. Yeah. It's, it's, it's painful. It's devastating. Yeah. Devastating. Talk, because you've thought more about this. What is so devastating about that? And I don't mean Bill Cosby, just, just the that when, when, when a father figure lets us down. What's devastating? Why is it devastating? Well, think about this for a second. I, I often, um, when I mentor 
um, young males myself, the first question I generally ask them when I'm trying to give them messaging that I know will help matriculate them into manhood is this question. What's your favorite sport? Many of them say that, you know, baseball, football, many of them all go to basketball. It's pretty universal in our country, right? And then I ask them, name me your favorite players. And the usual suspects come up. The LeBrons, the Kobe's, the MJ's, the, uh, you know, the Kareem's, the Magic's, and, I, and the Larry Bird's. And I ask them, Finally, you got a white guy in there. You had that white guy. Finally, you got one. You got, but you had to go back forty no, years. No, no disrespect to, to my, my, my white brothers. <laughs> no disrespect to my white brothers. So, so <laughs> that's hysterical. That's hysterical. So you had a big story from forty years ago who couldn't jump. Okay, so so literally, <laughs> I, I always say to them, "What does what what." Name me some things that they all had in common, right? And they all say the same things. They had drive, they had talent, perseverance, they had grit. Yeah, yeah, strength, yeah. What else? The one thing that they all had in common. What is that? And they're stumped. And I said, they all had coaches. From the time that they played at AAU, to the time that they played in high school, to college, to the pros, they all had coaches. I said, now pay very careful attention to this. The higher that they got in their level of performance, the more that was at stake. The more that's at stake, you don't get less coaching, you get more coaching. So these guys have a shooting coach. They've got defensive coaches. They've got strength and conditioning coaches. They've got mental coaches. They have nutritionists, which is a food coach. So they've got all this coaching to make them a great player. And, And all of them sit around and they go, yeah, it finally begins to hit them. I said, so if we just determined that you need great coaching in order to become a great player, why do you think you don't need great coaching in order to become, to become a great man? Everyone misses that. Yep. Everyone misses that. And our society, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because my father and I were estranged from, from each other for 20 years. We finally reconciled when I was 46. I'm 51 right now. We've reconciled after 20 years of being estranged from each other off of a conversation that I had with my daughter, who at that time was 11. She's now 15, about to turn 16. And she asked me a very simple question. She said, Dad, do you know where your father is? I knew where he was, but I knew that no answer that I was going to give her was going to be good enough to explain why I was cheating her out of a grandparent. And I finally began to wrestle with this subject with myself to figure out why I was so unforgiving of my father. And I finally came to this. Little me had not recovered. Little me had been devastated by the loss of my father, which was also the loss of manhood messaging. 
I am my son's manhood drill instructor. Every single day, there is another lesson that allows him to further matriculate into manhood. It's a slow process for him because he's 11, but every day he's receiving messaging that allows him to inch closer and closer to manhood so that by the time he is an age that society deems him to be a man, like 21, 25, whatever that magical age is, he has already matriculated into his manhood, right? And that is a slow cooking process. So when we don't have father figures in our life, we don't receive messaging of manhood. And so how do you get to that? My mother was a, was a phenomenal mother. My mother taught me great things about life, but my, what my mother couldn't teach me was to be something that she was not. My mother couldn't teach me how to be a man because she wasn't one. Well said. So she taught me how to be a great human being. She taught me how to be responsible. She taught me how to be loving. She taught me how to be kind, but she couldn't teach me how to be something she was not. Mothers have created amazing men as single yes. moms. You know, yes. the Bible says that God's a father to the fatherless. So it certainly yes. does happen. It can happen. I know yes. a lot of mothers that have figured out how to find a father figure for their son. Just That's to be around right. That's right. But it also reminds me, though, gosh, a year or so ago, uh, I don't know if I'd say your buddies, certainly some of you work with, Kevin Hart, yeah. He just got crushed because I guess he had a stand-up a stand-up act where he said, you know, when daddy comes home, daddy comes home, we get pummeled. All the kids say, daddy's home. They get up, they beat like, It's like, that's, that's what happens to your dad. And he was like, how dare you talk about what happens to a dad? Because, you know, it was that people got offended that he was saying that happens uniquely to fathers when my kids have never jumped on and pummeled my wife when they come in. Why right. is that? Do you remember that situation or that whole, sure, of that course. whole PR fiasco sure, of course. a year or so ago? Do you remember you that? Know, to be honest with you, um, and, and I don't mind saying this, we are in a very interesting time because the pendulum has been so far to the right, which was in the favor of us as uh, males and as men. And, um, and, for so long, women were the second-class citizens of the, the, uh, of the gender spectrum. Now, in, in order to even it out, and it, it's kind of, it's just like everything else in life, in order for things to regain balance, things have to swing the other way in order for balance to be regained. So I wish that the audience could kind of see us, but like if you have, whenever you see someone do a tightrope act and they're walking across this tightrope and they've got this weighted rod that they're holding in their hands and if their weight went to one side, say the right side, in order to regain balance, that weight would have to go where? Back over to the left in order to get back to the center. Extreme left of center. Extreme left of center 
in order to come back to center, right? That makes sense. We are in a, uh, a, a, a part of society right now where males and men, and this is one of the other reasons why I wrote this book, Male Versus Man, is because many of our sisters in our society don't know the difference between males and men. So give us a couple of those, Dondre. So a male looks to be served while men look to be of service. Mm. And simply by virtue of the fact that we all have pecs, facial hair, and penises, we must all be the same. That we are all monolithic. And that is absolutely not the case. Male speaks to my gender. So when I'm born, the doctor takes a peek, says, oh, he's got a penis. That guy is a male. But in order for you to become a man, you have to have purpose and precision. The only two things that males have to do is have a penis and a pulse. So you just have to have a piece of equipment and you have to be breathing. So as long as you have those two things in play, welcome to the club of being a male. But in order to be a man, you got to have purpose and precision. And many women don't understand that there is a difference. So because you are wearing the uniform of a man, facial hair, pecs, penis, does not necessarily mean that you are a man. It just means that you're wearing a uniform of one. You look like one, but we don't know if you perform like one. Well, and unfortunately, many women have never met a man. They just met a male. Absolutely. And guess what? What if your father was a male? You don't know how to tell the difference. You think that every male that you encounter is a man because often there are fathers who are males themselves who abuse their wife, who neglect their children, who, uh, who, are, uh, who don't understand that their assignment in life is to serve the women and children in their life. So watch this. I have a 15-year-old daughter. Now, I just said something controversial to many people that my mother couldn't teach me how to be something that she was not. That's not controversial. That's true. I have a 15-year-old daughter. Can I teach her how to be a woman? Absolutely not. Why? Because I'm a man. I have no idea what that is. Here's what I can teach my, my daughter. I can teach my daughter how to be in a loving relationship with a man. Why? Because I'm a man. I can teach my, my, every single day, my daughter has a dress rehearsal of what it's like to be in a loving relationship with a man. So that by the time she comes of age and she's looking for an appropriate partner for herself, she will immediately know whether she's in front of the right guy or not. Why? Because she's been in rehearsal for this her entire life. And so when she gets in front of the right one, she's like, yep, this one has the right aroma coming off of him because I've been around this my entire life. I know what this is. That's good. That is my hefty contribution to my daughter. My wife has the task of teaching her how to become a woman. Why? Because my wife is a woman. She knows what that is. So my assignment is to be the cover to my daughter and to give her the proper reps at how to have languaging with a man. And many of our sisters, unfortunately, miss out on that.
So your wife is there to give your daughter stereotypes and you're there to give your son male gender stereotypes. Tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. Be some would say there, there is no difference between men and women other than the equipment, but there is. Right. But there absolutely is that. So let me give you an example. Here, here again, I'm, a t- I'm, I'm about to say something, quote unquote, controversial. Oh, we don't want any controversy here on the yeah, yeah. Life. No, no. We just want to make everybody happy. Just tell people what they want to hear. We're about making people feel good with what they yeah. already believe. Yeah. No, if you feel good at what you believe, it probably means that you are comfortable. And if you are comfortable, that means that you're not growing. The truth is this. It's been like a case study in my house. My daughter is 15. She's about to turn 16. My son is 11 years old. I have coached all of my kids' teams. My daughter plays fast pitch softball. She used to play basketball. My son plays basketball and he plays baseball. I have coached all of my kids' teams. Whenever I have coached any of my son's teams, every mom at one point or another during the season comes to me and asks me the same question. What is wrong with my son? I think something is wrong with him. This time, I don't understand what he's doing. He's crazy. Something is wrong with this boy. Coach, tell me what is wrong with my son. And I say to them, nothing. He's a boy. They ask the question, is he crazy? And I answer the question, yes, he is. (laughs) (laughs) So let me explain that, right? Before we became a civilized society, and I'm using quotes on that because Jesus, help us. It's not very civilized right now, right? But before we became this quote unquote civilized society, before we had Nikes and Adidas and all these other things that we could put on our feet, We'd be running around barefoot and fashioned a weapon out of a stick and a stone. And then we would go about the business of trying to kill an animal three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times our size and believe that we were going to win that battle and not be killed ourselves. (laughs) With a weapon fashioned out of a stick and a stone, And barefoot. When we were 12. When we were 12. Why? Because we were the hunters of our villages. We believed wholeheartedly that we were not going to be killed in that exchange. You have to be a little crazy. In order to believe that you're going to kill an animal three, four, five, six times, seven times your size... And not die in the process. Right. So now here's what happened. We became a civilized society. We had, now we have grocery stores. So we don't have to be the hunters anymore to hunt for our food without sneakers on our feet and without these weapons fashioned out of sticks and stones. So that part changed. But here's what didn't change, Brian. Our DNA coding didn't change. So that portion of us that's still the hunter, that's still a little bit crazy in order for us to be hunters is still a part of our DNA coding. Do you understand where I'm going? 
Right, yeah. 12 years old, we're, we're killing things so we can eat it. 12 years yes. old, we're killing things so a village can eat it. 12 years old, we're, contrib- we're contributing to, to, to the tribe. That's, 12 years old, there's a vision for our life. And, and now, 12 years old. what do I got? I got TV, I, I got, I I got, got Xbox, PlayStation, yes. and I got Nikes. And I got no purpose, and I have no point to my life, and I have nothing that stretches me, and I never get punched in the face. And what I do today isn't going to make any difference whether or not I'm going to have food tonight or not. Yes, yes. Why do we have a problem again? That's why. So, so all of those things, not having that DNA coding change, allows us to have the same courage, the same piece of craziness running through us that we have to learn how to manage. If no one ever breaks that down for you, you have no idea what you're contending with within yourself. A a, a woman, a girl, is built completely different. Why? She is the first nurturer of a child. She has a child living in her for nine months. So when she looks at a situation, she looks at it completely different than we do. Let me give you an example. And here's how I break it down to every parent when I'm teaching them about the fact that your, uh, that your daughter is completely different than your son. If I started a fire outside and I put broken glass in it and steel pokers and and I put kerosene on it and and I made this small fire an inferno. A girl, my daughter would go to that and she would go, whoa, that looks dangerous. I should leave that alone. My son would look at that same situation and go, whoa, that looks dangerous. I should go and check this out. I should go put some more gasoline on it. I should go go see how, how... how big a fire we can make this. That is the fundamental mental difference between a girl, generally speaking, and a boy, generally speaking. So for someone to suggest that we are all the same is naive. We are not all the same because our DNA coding doesn't back that up. You've got some just great lines in your your book, Male Versus Man. Let me give a couple of them to you. You say, we cannot grow a male into a man while he is in the space of accommodation, convenience, and comfort. I mean, that's that's America. We want to be accommodated, we have comfort, and that's why we don't have more men. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why we have the kind of leadership that we have today. This is not a political thing. I'm not making this a Democrat or Republican thing. I'm talking about a servant thing. If you've always been accommodated throughout your life, it's extremely difficult for you to see yourself as a servant of the people. Mm. If you've never had to have that kind of struggle, if you've never been put in a position where someone demands that you are a servant, you can't magically turn on your servant leadership because you've been given a particular job. If it hasn't been ingrained in you, it's virtually impossible 
for you to be able to walk that out no matter what your job is. So in other words, if you haven't had the reps to turn you into a servant, when push comes to shove, people will see that you are not a servant leader because you have not had the, the appropriate amount of reps in order to turn yourself into that. that that's, a, that's very insightful because you know my, my faith tells me that Jesus died for me on a cross and that was 33. I don't think he could have done that at 12 because the Bible tells me he grew in wisdom and stature. So Absolutely. we matured to that. Yep. You also write this. You write, when we enable a boy, we disable the man. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Oh my gosh. Brian, let me tell you something. It just gave me goosebumps just when, when, when you said that. It's one of my favorites because... Let me, give you, let, me, let me give you an example. I talked about the coaching thing, me coaching my, my son's teams, right? Often what would happen is after our baseball games, the moms would rush into the gate to come into the dugout and begin gathering their son's belongings. Water bottles, equipment, all of that. Right. I have I tell folks all the time, I am a righteous man. I'm not necessarily a religious man. I'm a righteous man. So whenever I say anything to my sisters, it's always firm, but with love. So I would always say to every single one of my sisters, the moms, please get out of my dugout. <laughs> <laughs> and they would stop. Because no one ever tells them that. No one ever tells them that. I said, the reason why you have to get out of my dugout is because you don't have a uniform on and you didn't play in this game. And if you didn't play in this game, that equipment, those water bottles are not your responsibility. Right now, you are enabling your boy and later on, you will be disabling the man that he could become by enabling him now. He's going to expect somebody else to clean up after him. He's going to expect somebody else to serve. He's going to expect somebody else to come along and deal with it. Bingo. Yeah, instead of him taking responsibility. So I literally would tell them, you are not going to enable your son on my watch. <laughs> so I would make them go out of the gate. All of my players, knew they're all my surrogate sons. White, black. Latino, Asian, doesn't make a difference. I see color, but color doesn't matter. Now, you keep talking about the moms, Dondre. Are there no yes. dads coming there to watch these games? Of course, but, but see, see, here's the thing, Brian. None of the dads felt the necessity to go and pick up after this. Oh, oh, oh son, let me, let me, let me, because they already know what it is. They know that he has to learn how to pick after, pick up after himself. Yeah. The moms, remember, are the first nurturers. So they're still nurturing. So watch this, Brian. I'm going to say something else that's going to be controversial. That's still only truth. Toxic masculinity comes from this. Toxic masculinity comes from a lack of manhood accountability and an overexposure 
to feminine accommodation. Dag. You like that? I love that, that. That's truth right there, my brother. A lack of male accountability and an overabundance of female accommodation. There it is. Putting on a clinic. That is absolutely what it is, sir. Without a doubt. Can no one, no one can disprove, disprove that. That is a fact. A lack of manhood accountability and an overexposure to feminine accommodation is what ultimately builds toxic masculinity. Yeah, we still see that in whenever there are relationships. Hey, hey remember back in the days when, when 20-year-olds used to date 20-year-olds? Remember back in the days when real people used to go out on dates and, and kiss? Remember way back when? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, sometimes yep. when that still happens, which is very rarely, because we'd rather look at our porn and we'd rather we'd rather text somebody. Um, yeah. Oftentimes yep. now, that's why some of those relationships are still so dysfunctional. He's absolutely accountability, and she's just trying to accommodate all of his issues and do whatever she needs to do to to make him happy. Absolutely, and to keep him in order for the sake of her feeling worth, because she was able to keep a guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is deep. Let's get in the lightning round. We're coming down. Are you ready for the lightning round, Dondre? Can you handle the lightning round? Man, I am lightning. Let's do this. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to ask you something, and you got to answer in like one or two sentences. Here we go. Here we go. Favorite TV show you didn't have an acting role in? Wow. Uh, Good Times and Brady Bunch. Good Times? (laughs) Come on. JJ Dynamite. Come on, brother. Come on, man. Come on, man. (laughs) My wife, Are you kidding me? Did you have, Brady, have, a, did you have a man crush on, on, on Mr. Brady, on Daddy Brady, Mike? I, the, the, the Brady Bunch was such a phenomenal show. Like, I, I, I just wanted that, uh, that loving family environment. Yes. And Good Times. A dad who would listen to you. A dad abs- who was honorable. Yes. Absolutely. And on Good Times, ironically... You saw the same thing, but you saw it in another way. They were dealing with um, a, 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 a father who was present, who was dealing with his children. He had well-behaved uh, 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 children in this volatile environment. And they were dealing with how do you do all of these things? How do you accomplish? How do you come out of this environment that's so dangerous? So you saw... How to deal with a, a, a loving family environment and structure, but in two totally different environments. Actor or actress, you'll see in anything. Oh my gosh. Uh, Meryl Streep and uh, Sidney Poitier. All right. Biggest lesson you've learned about manhood by being a husband? Listen. Biggest lesson you've learned about manhood by being a father? Listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, looking around us, we've got COVID-19. We've got awful things, a lot of despair happening. What keeps you going? What gives you hope? God, I, you know, I, I know that while God didn't bring COVID to us, God is allowing uh, COVID to bring um, the less uh, valuable lessons to us. All right. What COVID did was it took away our distractions. And so we were supposed to learn how to reconnect with each other as human beings. So 
I, I, I actually, I honor the lessons that have come out of the devastation of having COVID in our midst. Biggest aggressive move of your career or life? Um, leaving the comfort of a hit television show to pursue my purpose. I always tell people that acting is my passion, activation is my purpose. Dondre, this has been great. Uh, I just want to, before we're done, just, just tell us about books or projects you've got coming up, coming that you're excited about. Tell us about how people can connect with you or find you or follow you. Just, you, you dropped a lot of truth bombs on us. This, is, uh, this has been very, very invigorating. So give us a great advertisement for yourself and give us something to find you with. Well, this book is still very much alive. So I'm still uh, very much in the midst of promoting male versus man. But currently we're getting uh, out my, uh, my book propo proposal together for my second book, which is a relationship book loosely entitled The Hero and the Herd. I truly feel like every man needs to feel like the hero of his house and every woman needs to feel heard in her house. Wow. Um, so that is the second one and it is absolutely going to change the way we do relationships. Um, I counsel couples. I also co uh, counsel um, some uh, pretty accomplished uh, individuals like many people will see in my digital series, Male Versus Man, which is on YouTube. So if people need to seek me out for counseling, they can reach out uh, to me um, on my social media channels. Um, uh, Instagram is uh, at alldondre, A-L-L-D-O-N-D-R-E. My uh, Twitter is at Dondre Whitfield, D-O-N-D-R-E, W-H-I-T-F-I-E-L-D. And my uh, Facebook is also at Dondre Whitfield. So um, all of those things keep me extremely busy. And the coup de grace is me working on uh, my script for my family comedy. Um, all things come full circle. So I started my career on The Cosby Show. And I decided to ask myself, if The Cosby Show were on the air right now, what would that look like? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring that to, uh, to the air. I'm, I'm writing a show right now, a family half-hour comedy that's loosely based on my own family, my, myself and my wife and, and, and my two children. So I'm working on a lot, sir. Man, you, you are a voice that we need. And I've been, I've been very, I've, I've been helped personally by this. That says a lot. Dondre, phenomenal. I hope to cross paths with you again in the not too distant future. And uh, I hope to always make you happy when I'm with you because I don't want you practicing your Krav Maga. <laughs> Welcome to the aggressive life. Great to be here, brother. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.